You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, Zach's here to talk to us about um, worship and Sunday gatherings, um, and intentionally kind of put it at this spot um, in the series to understand, you know, why it is that we worship and whom we are worshiping. Um, We've talked so far about scripture, especially in light of our 21st century situation in society and scripture is still, despite what culture's saying, have a firm belief around here that it is authoritative and sufficient. And we've talked about the nature of God and uh, in light of that human nature and the tension at play and the need for redemption in Jesus Christ, which Stephen talked to us about. Um, and then after that, talked about the sacraments of baptism and communion. So I think after all that's been said, we're finally ready to talk about the concept uh, of worship and Zach's our canon for liturgy and worship. And here's your name tag that says that and, and recording. And do you want to say anything more about yourself before you get started and, and, and tell sure. us what you want to say about worship? Before my secondary lecture, um, yeah, I, I grew up in Hawaii and then met my wife in California. She and I uh, went to a small Christian college called Biola University and uh, met on a missions team. She was an athlete. I was a music nerd, so there wasn't going to be any connection. And there uh, ended up uh, being a, a mission trip that we both went on, and we got to know each other in that context. Got married, moved to Denver, near Colorado Springs, where she's from. Went to seminary, had four kids, lived there for a decade, um, and then went down to serve a church in Fort Lauderdale for three years. And... Really, actually, through that church, I got to know the Advent, and that's why I'm here today, uh, and very excited to be a part of this um, this time. I want to talk about worship just a little bit, and hopefully um, offer some times for questions, and maybe even through this, you get to know me a little better, so that if you have any questions about uh, why we do what we do in worship, I can help you. That's that's part of my job is to be able to teach on this stuff, help us to discern a little bit. I'm going to talk about Three things. I want to define what worship is generally. I want to talk about the value of worship in the prayer book tradition a little bit. And uh, the one thing I want to I want to zoom in on that one thing that we hope that you get out of our worship services and talk a a fair amount about that. Uh, So first, I want to talk about worship. and I'm going to draw a little little picture here of a way of describing what I think is the kind of biblical framework, because chances are even when I say that word, um, we might mean different things. If I just said the word worship, you could understand it a bunch of different ways. And oftentimes in churches, when people are dialoguing about worship or arguing about worship, which because I've, it's just been my job, I've been at the center of this kind of thing. When people are talking, they're often talking past each other uh, because of the different definitions. And so what I want to do is just briefly uh, offer a little set of concentric circles. And I want to start, when, you, when we're talking about worship, um, there's a there's a kind of broad 
sphere that I think is the Bible's largest category for worship. And it's found in a place like, like 1 Corinthians 10, 31 that says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And even if you did a kind of word study of the word glory in scripture, that would be a very helpful and fruitful endeavor to understand the Bible's broad sweeping uh, view of worship. And with that kind of biblical idea in mind, basically what we're saying in the broadest sense biblically, that worship is all of life oriented toward something else. And actually the Bible kind of talks about the way in which human beings, uh, man and woman, were created as worshiping beings. When I teach on this concept in with our uh, our confirmation students, I bring in my my stack of Marvel cards, Marvel comic cards from the 80s that I collected, and I pull out Cyclops. You know, if you've seen the Marvel movies, there's Cyclops, and his power is he's able to shoot out a beam of light from his eyes, and so he has this kind of machine mechanism that's a governor of this thing, so that he doesn't, you know, every time he opens his eyes, he doesn't blow up whatever he's seeing because that's that's his power. I think that's an actually good illustration of the way God created us is that you and I naturally, every last one of us, Christian, non, every human being fires a beam of worship out of ourselves towards something. We're wired to adore. We're wired to be captivated by it. And the whole, one could describe the whole nature of the fall, the whole nature of sin as aiming our worship in inappropriate directions. Aiming our worship anywhere but Godward. Uh, and so it really isn't the case that you could say that people who are religious are worshipers and people who aren't, aren't. The fact of the matter is every created human being worships. And you can know this because everybody's got desires in their heart and everybody aims them in certain places. It's, it's kind of the root and, and, and fruit of every last obsession you and I have, every last thing you know, and oftentimes it, it, we can talk about what do we really worship? You know, every last one of us, what do we really worship? Well, what do you wake up thinking about? What do you go to sleep thinking about? What, uh, what uh, do you sort of prioritize to check out on your phone? All these things are illustrations of the fact that we're worshiping beings. And in the broadest sense, we, are, we worship someone and something. And the nature of idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. And so that means idolatry isn't an ancient thing of worshiping sticks and stones, but is an orientation of us apart from Christ that we're just going to naturally do. We're going to naturally be idolaters. That's the nature of it. And one could say that Jesus coming to the world was to reclaim and re-aim broken worshipers. It was like God's worship factory recall where Jesus came to sort of get the broken products aimed Godward again, right? One could say that that's what it's about. And that's the broadest sense of worship. So we're not even talking Christian worship yet, but the next sort of sphere, if I'm just saying that this this is worship, the aiming of our desires and, and our lives, whoa, this next inner, inner circle. Matt, could you help me to make sure this doesn't... Okay, there we go. If there's, if there's a subset within it, um, Christian worship is a unique kind of worship. Uh, we need to really frame it in a Trinitarian perspective. We could go to a place like Romans 12.1 to realize, you know, after Romans 1 through 11, when Paul has unpacked the gospel in a pretty powerful way, Romans 12.1 is finally Paul's, therefore, 
Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So right there, he's using a worship word. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. This is the way you orient yourself toward God is through this gospel. When Jesus saves you, he reorients you toward the one to whom your worship should be aimed. And this is a living sacrifice kind of thing. So it's all of life, which means that God really is about re-aiming you toward him in all of life, not just in the gathering on Sunday mornings. And that's what Christian worship is ultimately. And the, the basic definition I'll give you again is must be a, a Trinitarian one. It's the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Christian worship only rightly happens when a life is oriented toward God through Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's that whole kind of glory of God thing in your vocation as a homemaker or your vocation as a lawyer or uh, as a trash collector. Whatever it is that you do, there's a way in which we engage this in a Christian manner. And it's to the glory of God through Jesus Christ and what he's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Christian worship. All of my life oriented back toward God in offering him glory. And then thirdly, what we often talk about when we use the word worship is gathered Christian worship. This place where where God says, I want you at certain times regularly to gather and meet together and like Hebrews warns, don't forsake this. This is really important. And what we could say about a worship service, like what we just did or what you will do at 11 o'clock, is that a worship service is kind of like a distillation of all of life. As strange as that is and as foreign as a liturgy might feel, the goal of a worship service is to kind of provide you a vision of your life, to provide you the center of who you are. It's like if we took a human being who's made in the image of God and oriented toward God through Jesus Christ and we distilled the essence of that, that's what a worship service is. And uh, I describe it like this. One of my favorite hymns is, is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The second line says, Tune my heart to sing thy praise. I wish I could say that this Christian worship characterizes my life from week to week. But the reality is it doesn't. I find myself like a guitar sort of just naturally falling out of tune and needing to be retuned and recalibrated. And that's one of the gifts of corporate gathered worship is that God is, is kind of retuning us and recalibrating us. I mean, it's a spiritual aid. And God also gives certain gifts in a worship service that he chooses to reserve for that context that he gives no other place. It's historically been called by the church, the, the word and the sacraments. They're particular gifts that come at God's people in specific ways, so that this might happen again, so that we might be sort of against the sort of inclinations of our flesh. We might be reoriented again toward God and spit back out in mission into the world and telling others and gathering other worshipers in. And so I'd say there's kind of like a, uh, a symbiotic relationship between worship and mission. Worship gathers the people of God, gives the world the gospel in that context, and then energizes people with fuel, fires them out to be missionaries and to reclaim 
factory recall other broken worshipers, right? God sends us out to do that work and to preach that gospel that draws people in. And then they're energized and they go out. And so worship and mission kind of work hand in hand as we worship through giving ourselves in mission. That's kind of the broad view of, of the mega scope of what worship is and does. The value of worship in the prayer book tradition, two things. Number one, it's historical. And we never want to do something in worship simply because it's old. You know, antiquity and oldness is not a good reason to do something. And yet, um, the Bible even encourages us that we, you and I, are part of a church that transcends not only space, like we're worshiping with worshipers in Africa and China and Uzbekistan all over the place right now, but it also transcends time. And one of the ways that when we come together and we gather and we say old things, sing old songs, sing songs from before our own time, is what we're saying is I'm part of something that's much broader than the now. Uh, I'm part of a body of factory recalled human beings who have been recalled, you know, before the foundations of the world by God through Christ. I'm part of that body. I'm part of that church. And so when we connect historically in our worship, we're making a claim like the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We believe that we're part of this body. And when uh, it's, it's a helpful reminder when we use words that are a bit more foreign on our tongue or when we sing hymns with music that are certainly older or different from what's on the radio. Part of it is a, is a, is a claim about who we are. It's an identity claim. And so that's an important uh, aspect to worship in the prayer book tradition is that it gives us a sense of our historicity, that we're rooted in history and time and place. Uh, but m- more importantly, the value of worship in the prayer book tradition is that it's biblical. Um, I wish, and if you ever took a class, and I teach these from time to time, where I try to unpack the prayer book for us and demystify it, because there's so many words flying at us that I think we're just trying to hang on for dear life with the roller coaster and the barrage of the, uh, you know, the fire hose of words like beseech and oblation and those kinds of things just smacking us in the face during the communion liturgy, right? Uh, we need a place to be able to sort of get the forest for the trees and then head back into the trees and understand what we're hearing. But one of the gifts, and Deborah actually alluded to it um, in her sermon today when she was talking about the fact that it's, it's extremely scriptural. Not only in the fact uh, that I'd say like uh, the historic... English Reformation liturgy is very biblical in its theology, but it actually is biblical in its wording. Um, you remember she referenced this, this Titus passage that she's preaching from today that, that leaks into our morning prayer liturgy um, where we talk about... I'll just open it up. And it's not even just an allusion. It's the older English version of that very text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And actually in our prayer book, that's a direct quotation. And it's estimated that about two thirds of the prayer book is simply scripture, about two thirds of it. And so kind of awesomely, even the words that we give back to God in worship are gifts of him. It's almost as though we say, I don't even, in response to your gospel, I don't even know that I'm sort of spiritually strong enough to know what to say to you, oh God. 
And yet God gives us those very words in his scripture to say back to him, to pray back to him. And the beauty of uh, worship in the prayer book tradition is that it's, it's a trustworthy and biblical way of worshiping. Not the only way, but a great way, a great way. Um, what do we hope that you get out of a worship service? We hope that you get out of a worship service that the words and the symbols of our worship drive you to one place, and that is seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. If anything in our worship is causing you to look in any other direction, I hope we get rid of it. (laughs) Or maybe I hope that you're able to get yourself or allow the Holy Spirit to reorient you to what it's really about. You know, and there's a blessing and a curse to the way we do worship around here. And the blessing is is kind of the things that I've outlined, the historicity of it and the biblical nature of it. But part of the curse is that you and I, as Calvin said, uh, we're, we're idol factories. Our hearts, our flesh, just we love making idols out of things. And when we have a, um, a worship service that's so verbally rich and so visually rich with our, our sanctuary, we're just prone to start staring at those things instead of staring at the Christ to whom those things point. And what I want to say is all these things in worship that we do and engage, the music, the liturgy, the visuals, uh, what we're wearing even, really are supposed to be clear windows to help us look through and see Jesus in all his saving life and death. You know, That's what we want to uh, be able to view and have happen. And so... When you're walking out of worship, it's my hope. It's my hope that every last Adventer, and I know that this is an ongoing thing that the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can do. But when you're walking out of worship, my hope is that you're not saying, wow, that was a great choral anthem. Or wow, wasn't, uh, wasn't the music beautiful today? Or wasn't that a great sermon? Or isn't the liturgy marvelous? What I really hope pastorally that you and I are saying as we walk out of a worship service is, Isn't Jesus a great savior? Praise God for Jesus Christ in my life. You know, that's what we want all these things to point you to. Um, That's part of the reason that I kind of re-up teaching this prayer book class is so that we can gain that forest perspective that Jesus is the one to whom we look, the one we adore as we, as we look there. Um, That's probably about all I'll say and I'd love to open it up to any questions about what I said or, you know, any thoughts that you have about worship? Is there time for a question, Matt? Oh, yeah. Plenty of time. This is great. Good. Yay. Where did the prayer book come Good question. It, uh, the prayer book, it, so one of the cool things about the Book of Common Prayer is that it's historically rooted in the oldest uh, English-speaking liturgies that we have. Prior to the Book of Common Prayer hitting the scene in 1549, the English-speaking world did not worship in English. So in 1549, for the first time in the existence of humanity, uh, people were able to worship God in, in the English tongue. Legal. Legally. Yeah, there's a, illi- there a lot of illicit and illegal <laughs> worshiping of God. <laughs> right, because there were, there were devotional books where people had kind of snippets and sections of the Latin liturgy translated into English. And even those things, so to back up, the prayer book um, emerged out of the historic Christian liturgy that developed from around the first century up until the 1500s. And that morphed and complexified over time. And when the English reformers hit the scene in the 16th century, 
they really wanted to edit it down, theologically especially, so that it was in line with the gospel. Um, so our prayer book is what I would say is a, a, a distillation of all the gospel themes of historic Christian liturgy in one place. Cranmer was very interested in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that was his guiding principle. And I will tell you, not everyone will tell you that. There's a lot of different Cranmer scholars and opinions out there. I happen to think this one is the right one. But um, uh, he was very interested in making the gospel clear and accessible in English for the people. And so that's kind of the the broad, where did the prayer book come from? Yes? Right. Right. Uh, what's your reaction? Ah! <laughs> that's that's kind of my reaction. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, of course, God is not male because God is spirit, right? In Christ, God is male. But um, what we want to do as we worship, and this just needs to be clear, what we want to do in worship is simply worship the way this encourages us to. And uh, this book, yes, it was written in a time and place in patriarchal cultures. Yes, it was. But God in his providence saw fit to refer to himself with these kinds of pronouns and in these kinds of ways and as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, And so Advent's committed uh, against such rulings to... um, to be faithful to the revealed word of God about what we sh- what should we call God? Let's not invent it. Let's ask him what he wants to be called. And he answers that pretty plainly in the scriptures. And so that's what we're going to call him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Other questions? Back about a year ago, you did a course uh, where you basically took our... Um, pamphlet from the service and you just went through and you broke it all out. Uh, it was incredibly helpful to me. I've been going to physical church my whole life. So for newcomers, I think it would be really yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah, the nine-week course, which is a little, it gets in the weeds a little bit. If you go to thechicks.com slash prayerbook class, I kind of put it all there and it's a little bit easier to find. But you can go on our audio and get the four-week class or the nine-week class. And chances are sometime in 2018, I'm going to be teaching something like this again. In fact, the dean's class in June, I've got four or five weeks and I may end up doing that just because we need it. We need to sort of remember what we do. And yeah, I think that's really important because it's such a detailed and complex thing that we do in worship that it really is helpful for us all to see and hear the gospel in it. So, yeah. You yes, some about your, your comment about like um, the illicit English Bible um, class. Right. It's a good reminder that people were murdered for having one in their homes. You know, That's right. Century or so. Yeah. Um, I just read Column of Fire by Kim Collette. And mm. it's such a good, you know, reminder of like this, of taking my Bible for granted in the morning and reading in bed and like this that would have right. been killed. You know? Yes, it would have. And so our prayer book and these English words, people died for these words. That's right. You know? That's right. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of knocked me sobering away. It is. It is sobering. Zach, in terms of the update of the prayer book and the prayers, 
we we went to a church that had that, that used a different rite, but also that would sometimes vary the prayers of the people with mm-hmm. cosmic language. <laughs> um, what, what's the in terms of sort of the governance and structure and, and ability of a diocese or, or an individual church to vary from that? How are those decisions made? Yeah, Matt, you want to answer that a little bit? Yeah, so you're talking about the prayers of the people in particular. Yeah. The yeah. prayers of the people are actually um, pretty open-ended, actually. So that's one of the problems that Zach's alluding to with the, the Book of Common Prayer is the double-edged sword is we can calcify and some of those have just come through practice. So for example, taking for granted the prayers the people always have to happen in a particular way. But if you actually read the 1979 prayer book, it's way, it's really flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, they provide at the most flexible level like six or seven categories to pray about with no particular language. And yet the prayer book offers seven or eight and write two options and um, one option really only in right one, but you could use those right two options in right one. It's so it's it's actually more flexible than we think because whatever church we're at tends to kind of fall into a routine. Um, and uh, so at the five black actually we've taken privilege of the flexibility and I craft the prayers every week uh, based on like kind of what I'm praying about and what's going on in society. And yet and yet you know I follow my own ruts. Too. And I mean, that's true. That's something to think about in terms of non-liturgical traditions and people who are being expository. Usually there is a set structure and liturgy to all of our prayers, mm. um, whether that's our own individual praying or um, more open-ended expressions of worship. Um, if you go to an evangelical non-denominational church that wouldn't call itself liturgical, um, they have there. There is a liturgy. It's just that ours is um, there's more language to it. it, it it's bigger. Um, so the prayer book tends to be actually more flexible than is the bottom line of what I'm saying. If you if you read the, the 1979 prayer book, it offers a ton of flexibility. The thing is, most churches aren't um, either paying attention to that or they're just falling into certain ruts, you know, and then the, 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 the practice starts to dictate what we think is right and not. Yeah. Maybe a silly question, but for those of us that came over from the Baptist Church, and I know there were a few a couple weeks ago, what are all the, the books of common prayer, the book of, what are all the, the rites? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. In, in brief, so, I mean, there's been a long history of the Book of Common Prayer being revised. So at various points in time, this liturgy, this book, um, experienced revisions in the Church of England and in the United States. And with those successive revisions, little tweaks were made here and there. Pretty significant revisions were made in 1928 and in 1979. And 79 is the, the prayer book that we currently use. 79 was the first to offer different options for what you could do for like a Holy Communion service. And those options are called right one or right two. Um, and so you could choose, a church could choose whether they want to do it. And there's interesting sort of visions of worship at stake in those various rites. Uh, and so you'll often find an Episcopal church sort of defining itself based on what rite they use. You'll hear like a, a Episcopal church say, we're a right to parish, or this is a right one service, or those kinds of things. And sometimes that's 
Sometimes that's code language for theological conservative, theologically liberal, sometimes. And other times it's just, uh, it's other kinds of language. It's very complex. But yes, it's, it's in the 1979 revision, the multiple options that are available now based on what the uh, committee that revised it and, and um, the, the domination that approved it at that t- time. And we're, there's going to be another revision coming out really soon. Not sure when, but I mean, it's imminent. And it's, um, <clears throat> from our perspective, not going to be good. So. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. Yeah, you want to answer that, Matt? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the Episcopal Church canon law requires that we use the current prayer book. Uh, no, we're, not, we're not using either one. Right. So, right. Yeah, let me finish. But, um, uh, but there have been provisions made at a national level with things that have passed to allow bishop discretion to approve a church's use of different liturgies. So Keyson has actually approved everything we do around here. Um, if you compare the 1979 right one, to answer your question, that's the older Elizabethan language with our liturgy. It's not. There's a, there are a lot of similarities, like you know 80%, but it's not. It's not exactly the same. What we've done is we've taken language from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer in England um, and sort of grafted it in uh, because theologically we feel it's more in line with the message that we preach around here. That message of justification that Cranmer so deliberately put... That he died for. Died for. Um, And so we went to Kislan. This was passed several years ago to allow that flexibility and ask for this permission, actually, ironically, to go in the opposite direction. The reason that law was passed was to allow flexibility in a more theological liberal direction, Mm -hmm. but we used it to our benefit to to kind of go back in history and do something that's more theologically aligned with what we believe. And so we have the bishop's approval. Yes, ma'am. Uh, when Walter Wood preached here during the Lenten series early on, he is, I believe, Tim Keller's uh, city-to-city mm-hmm. church planter for Europe. He said in preaching on worship that the problem with the church in America, the 21st century church, is our worship is half-hearted mm. and our obedience is shallow. But considering worship, I know it just made me so grateful mm-hmm. for our worship here. Yeah. Because um, I don't think there's anything half-hearted. Yeah. It, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it is a in all our various expressions of the liturgy, it's a it's a great gift that we have. It can be engaged half-heartedly, though, you know. And um, I'm I'm passionate about. I pray about this often. I mean, I want, I want us to say and pray and sing these words like we believe them and that our, our lives are staked on them, that we're hanging on this gospel. You know, our, we, we do say we're a church with a daring confidence in the gospel. And you want that daring part to be felt as we engage the liturgy. I think there's nothing more magnetic and nothing more attractive than a group of people who really believe what we're saying and praying. And so I encourage you all, engage the liturgy robustly. Don't get sucked into the uh, 
into the natural liturgical entropy, uh, the second law of thermodynamics of worship, which is everything goes toward chaos, right? Or everything goes toward like just doing it by rote. Pray that the Holy Spirit lights your heart on fire every time before you step into it, because it is indeed a, a wholehearted liturgy. But it can be engaged half-heartedly. And my pastoral prayer and admonishment to you and to myself is, uh, is give it all you got. And um, it, there's a, I, want, I want there to be a, a kind of culture shift at Advent in the way we sing hymns and the way we, uh, way, way we read creeds together and the way we uh, pray together. So may that, may that come to pass. May God ignite us. Yeah. It's great to Yes. Our Father, we ask that you would be pleased to make this vision of all of life oriented toward you in, in our vocation and in our loving of others through good deeds and in our, our worship of you as we gather Lord, make it increasingly so in us and uh, fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, and light our hearts on fire. And I pray that your spirit would revive the spirit of worship around the Advent and that you'd cause us to hear afresh this gospel that we've been hearing for so many years. Make it, make it new and restore to us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Zach. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.